Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I'm Jonathan Cake. This is Stage Door Johnny, the podcast about theatre and life and life in the theatre. Now, my continuing travels, regular listeners will know that I've been on my summer holidays, and this week's episode comes to you from a hotel room in London's Notting Hill. So I'm sorry if it's a little whiny, a little hummy, perhaps we'll get some bangy, a rich audio buffet of hotel sounds. I hope it doesn't seem too intrusive. This week's guest is a rich buffet himself. <laughs> the wonderful American actor John Slattery. John Slattery. You know John from a ton of movies. Come on, he's been in Flags of Our Fathers. He's been in Charlie Wilson's War Spotlight. Many, many others. But he's probably best known for one of the great TV creations of our time. Roger Sterling. <laughs> Just saying that name makes me laugh, thinking of him. Roger Sterling on The Great Mad Men. He's also now a director of movies. Oh yeah, he's just wrapped on his second movie as a director when we spoke early summer. But I'm not going to mention that, because not only am I a loyal union man, and we're on strike, SAG-AFTRA in the USA, we're not supposed to promote anything, quite right. But also because this is a theatre podcast and I don't care about his movies. I mean, I'm sure it's great, but it's not the theatre. You know what I mean? You know what I mean. But John has lived a great life in the theatre, as you're about to hear. Often naked, frequently sobbing, sometimes both. It's a powerful, powerful combination. We spoke in May this year, it was a lovely sunny day in Manhattan in the apartment I was living in when I was trying and uh, mostly failing to do a play there myself. Oh, John and I have a frank discussion about rap. It's an always an area of real strength and authority for two middle-aged white guys. And then we talk about... <laughs> there's no other way to say this. Problem genitalia. <laughs> Sorry, that doesn't sound enticing, does it? But... You should blame the TV show Dave and not us two. We are merely the middle-aged white messengers. Gentlemen of the stage door Johnny Company, this is your Act One beginner's call. Mr. Slattery and Mr. Cake to the stage, please. This is your beginners. Have a great show. Did you know we have something in common? Uh-oh. <laughs> Do you have any idea? You have two pee holes, to too? What? 
That's the way to start off this podcast. I've been watching this. Shout out to uh, Dave, the show Dave. Oh, I love Dave. It's the best show I've it's ever seen in my life. It's the best show I've ever seen in my life. I, I, the funniest, most sublimely hilarious. So, some of them, not all of them, but some of them achieve a, a tone, an ele- a, what do you call it, a, a, a comedic homogeneity i was gonna say like everything is firing on the same like about seven different elements firing so we should explain this is this is a a a tv show called dave about a rapper called little dicky a real Real dave bird real name dave bird who is a real rapper and one of the extraordinary things in the show talented rapper yeah Yeah. is that sometimes when he raps you think because he's such a sort of oddball kind of schlubby guy yeah. you think this is going to be dreadful when he actually raps he's fucking rips. it's unbelievable it's crazy they spent the first time and they do it so judiciously yeah they're reaching the sort of crest of a particular story they'll cut to him some in someone's house yeah. or on stage yeah. or in his own house or wherever and you're like holy shit I yeah how he's got to prove himself in front of a kind of sound studio full of hardcore or he writes rappers. a song to his girlfriend that's like Two verses of a song, and you're like, "That's the most, that's the best song I've ever heard." And just like the TV show, his his rapping is sort of this bizarre mixture where you think this is going to fall apart in front of my eyes, like wet paper mache. Yeah, and then suddenly it coheres, and this is exactly what the TV show feels like to me. It coheres into this enormous, not always as you say, but often this enormously powerful, resonant thing that is not yeah. only brilliantly funny but incredibly. Meaningful. And there's a new series, right? Yeah. And is. every single huge rap artist you've ever heard is does little cameos. And they're all brilliant. Yeah. So good. It's really special. Wait, so no, I don't have two P-holes. Like, Dave. So he has two P-holes. T- <laughs> I guess it's true. I mean, I don't know. The first Can scene, I sent true? people the first scene. I'm like, what's Dave? They're like, what is Dave? Okay, I'm going to send you the first scene, which is at the Thanks. urologist. And he's yes. sitting there. And the guy playing the urologist is genius. <laughs> Does it just the best deadpan? And he says, "Before I show you my pubiscus," the guy goes, "Well, pubiscus." He's like, "That might not be the correct terminology." But and then he goes off on the whole story, this digest version of his childhood. And you go, and then they, and then they cut to the doctor, and he has the exact same expression on his face that you have on yours, which is like, "Huh? What the what?" And then that's how the show starts. And then they cut, you know, like literally Dave. It's, it's the cold open of the cold, cold open. whole thing. It can only be true, can't it? Because the line between who, that's why I, you know, I don't the, know. I don't know. I'm sure. Well, I guess we'll like always my be dick is made of ball skin. Oh god, <laughs> it's extraordinary. So it's not that we have in common. No, okay. So now, what is it? Our, our, our common factor is much more prosaic. We were both on Desperate Housewives. Oh, see, this is who was first. Me, remember, you were definitely first. We were part of the major body count of men that went through that very complicated street. We're not going to talk about that, though, because this is a theater podcast. Although, if your experience was anything like mine... No, we're talking about anything. (laughs) I was going to say, off camera, it was kind of continual Greek tragedy. But I am going to say only this, which is that you are now... Big Shot movie director. Big Shot. Have you ever wanted to direct a play? I have. In fact, I investigated the film possibilities of a play called that started out in France called Le Prénom. What is that? First name. First name, yeah. And 
It's a dinner party with six people. Do you know this play? And yeah. they made a movie out of it. It's yeah, they terrific. Did. They did make it's a movie. It's a French film. Yeah. And it's great. And the premise is that one of the couples, there's conservatives and liberals, and they've all known each other since childhood. So there are these, yeah. you know, subterranean grudges and crushes yeah. and all this, you know, stuff going on that is ticked off by one of them saying, we're, we're having a baby. We've, they, they show the sonogram. It's a boy. And we've decided on the name, and you have to guess what the name is, and then they go in this guessing game, and no, 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 no. And then he announces that he's decided to name his son Adolf. (laughs) (laughs) And then then it all goes to shit, you know, in a very (laughs) multi-layered way. But wait, you've investigated the idea of directing that play as a movie. It's already been a movie Well, because it is, you know, when we were watching it, we were like, this is definitely a play. And it is. Because it all takes place in the living room of, a, of an apartment in Paris. But you would like to turn it back into a stage production. Yeah. Well, that's, that what they, stage found, that's what they did. Ah. Is they all did the play on ah. stage for a while. Like the Marx Brothers. Right. Would do, they would do the stage right. version. And then at the end of the run, they would shoot the movie. Right. How great is that? Get a company of people oh, together. What a great idea. Do the play. Yeah. And then shoot it. Go to an actual film studio and, yeah. and shoot it as a movie. And that's what basically what they did. Oh, what a great... Idea. Yeah, but it didn't translate as well. Adolf doesn't mean as much if you're not in Europe as it does here. Like, no one would name it. It would be just absurd here. But there you're like, wait, are you fucking crazy? And half of them are Jewish and half of them aren't. Right. And it just goes, you're out of your, you're, you're fucking kidding me, right? You're kidding. You, you don't, don't you get, you know, it, was, right. it just goes. But wait, did we just hit upon a, 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 an economic model that is going <laughs> to save theater? The idea that you do a run of a play. And then shoot, the and film. then have a sort of tie-in that you shoot the version of it afterwards. So you're not doing that weird hybrid filming the stage production, but you're just doing a simulcast. Watch, you know, yeah. go into a theater and yeah, watch someone do a play somewhere else. Someone in the New York Times, when we were all locked down, said it, it's like a delicious meal, Zoom theater that you you can see but you can't quite taste. And I always feel that about yeah. simulcast stuff that is. Sure. Anyway, but that could be. Yeah. I mean, if you're interesting, interesting enough idea. people, right? But then you. Yeah. I mean, if you'd have to, it would determine what kind of material. Yeah. Which theater normally is able to uh, go to a place that isn't as commercial. Yeah. So that play, maybe. But are there any other plays that you have an eye on? There's an Eric to- Overmeyer play that I did a long time ago. Long time, like I don't. I can't remember what year it was, but it was. Uh, at Manhattan Theater Club, and it was in the second theater, the second stage, and it never opened because there was some argument like, about the ending of the play. That sounds like my Management mind. decided that they wanted the ending of the play to change, and the playwright, Eric Overmeyer, disagreed. And, oh, wow. And so they said, well, we're just not going to bring the critics to it, which is too bad because it didn't occur to me until much later that I thought, well, you know, things might have been different if, if that play had opened, things might have been different. Why would things have well, been different? Well, because I there, there were performances in it. You know, if someone had seen it, that maybe you'd get you would have your your life would have gone in a different direction. I'm not saying I, in that in a bitter way, but it occurred to me yeah. later. This was a terrific part for a whole bunch. You know, all, all of us. And if someone seen that, maybe you would have been doing yeah. something else. You know, was, how, how old were you roughly when you did it? Was I mean, it early 30, days? Maybe? Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm sixty now. Did you have those things that, that, that haunt you about stage stuff? I mean, obviously, that sounds like a particular event because Refused it never actually that, no. opened. Um, 
sometimes I feel like I wish I could do that again. I wish right. actually somebody could see that. Well, I could do that performance and somebody could see it because the play had a very sort of wry and yet vulnerable tone. It was uh-huh. funny. It was a bunch of kooky characters, and then there was a there was a heavy secret that this family had that uh-huh. was underneath all of it. And Eric Overmeyer had a voice like nobody else. Uh-huh. Still does. What's the play called? Mi Vida Loca. Mi Vida Loca. I mean, yeah. Do you feel like reanimating that as a director? Yeah, maybe, yeah. Is there a part in there you could still play? Maybe, yeah. Gosh, interesting. This guy comes home to his family on the day that his father goes into a methadone clinic having been a morphine addict his whole life because he was shot in the ass in the war. So they, and the father has decided, you know, it's untenable, can't live like this anymore. So, wow. Um, he has a caretaker who the son sort of falls in love with, and there's a kooky sister and a brother and a mother, and it's I'm in. it's pretty interesting. I'm totally in. And and the, and the whole set is on the beach of this sort of ever encroaching sea. Oh wow! That you don't see obviously, and it's like a junk, like the porch is like a pot. Like they just hold, collect all the stuff, hammocks and people. So the whole thing takes place on the porch of this house. Well, that's a play for now. That encroaching sea. I mean, you're yeah. in New York, yeah. right here, surrounded really by rising water. Let's not tell about this either. Again. Let's keep this to ourselves. Did you agree with the playwright or with the management about the ending? That's kind of one of the things that I rue is that I didn't, I was too immature to take a stand or, uh, or have it matter to like, Oh, I did. Okay. Well, what? It didn't matter. It didn't really matter uh, that the critics weren't going to come. It seemed like, an, like, a, okay, well, we're going to, we're going to do this play and fuck them. Right. But had I, been had more of a management brain than I would have said. Wait a wait a second, this is stupid. We're all doing this play. No one's going to see this. Right. Just the cert, just the second stage uh, subscribers at Manhattan Theater Club, which right. is like, you know, yes. Not only is it, it's not even stage one. Which what do they say? Sleeps three hundred fifty. Nathan Lane said it was like screaming into a coffin. <laughs> I have have a lot of questions about Nathan Lane. Listen, you've artfully avoided the question there, but that's okay. If you want, do I want to direct a play? No, 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 no. Did you did you agree that the play that the the, the ending needed to be changed? I read it again recently, and it didn't. I don't. That didn't occur to me. Other stuff occurred to me, but that didn't. Why did you read it again? Because I thought it could make a small film. Look at you, constantly combing properties. It's very impressive. <laughs> that sounded. I can't keep up with the bass level in this. This is as deep as I thought. As I was leaving this, this morning, how am I going to <clears throat> cope? This is because um, I've been doing. Of course, the two weeks we've been off the play, I've been in stringent vocal exercises in my room. So listen, let's go back. Do you remember when you first went to the theatre? I do. What was it? It sounds ridiculous, but it was at the Cape Cod Melody Tent. Theater people know that name. Do you ever, do you, have you ever heard that? Well, my sister-in-law lives in Cape Cod, lives in Wellfleet. So I know that there's Cape Cod playhouses and stuff like that. I don't know about the Melody Tent. Cape Cod Melody Tent was a mostly musical venue. Right. Which, I guess, road shows. Uh, My mother-in-law, Joyce Van Patten, uh, was on the Kenley Circle Circuit, which was a East Coast summer circuit, which I think maybe the Melody Tent was a part of. Anyway, I saw Robinson Crusoe, I think. Did you? I don't even remember it. I think that's just the... Now I remember that's the first time I went to see a play. Was it literally a tent? Yeah. Do you have any 
vague sort of sensory memories of what it felt like? Was it... I remember going there and I remember... No, that summer I was young. I went with my neighbor. This this guy asked me to go with him. Just the two of you or or grown-ups? I think, you know, parents parents drove us there. I don't know whether... I don't recall... I don't even remember much of it. I just remember the t- the place. I remember the light of you know the day or something. Yeah. That's, I just know that that's the first time I right. actually that I recall going right. to the and show. how soon after that roughly and when or what were you were you first on stage? Junior high school, I think I was in the chorus of Bye Bye Birdie. You know, I wasn't exactly bitten by the but I think it was just something to do. Huh. Or maybe I maybe I had aspirations of being a, having a larger part, and then saw some guy singing his audition and thought, you know, I'm some bum who's you know in seventh grade. Do, do you have any memories of that of doing that show? I remember it was you know seventh grade, all putting yeah. on makeup and you know a bunch of girls and yeah. and, and then, you know hey you stupid hey whatever there's a there's a whole phone line thing. In the play, right. a party line um, number, right. where all the chorus. Hey, have you heard about that? And and it's the two, the young couple who are the center of the play, and the gossip around them going steady. It's, right, know, that's great play for junior high. Yeah, yeah, perfect for junior high. Yeah. So okay, if you weren't actively bitten then, when when did this strange accident that has been the last forty um, years of your life happen? I was a television uh, nut and movies, right? But mostly television when I was a kid. And my mother signed me up. I was not a good student. I was not ne'er do well, but I wasn't. You know, I was. I was much more interested in having a good time than I was anything, except probably English class. We had some good teachers, and we would do the same thing: listen to like Shakespeare on the on on the record player, and, oh. and follow along with. The plays and yeah. stuff, and that was and everybody. He we had teachers that were so good that they captivated everybody. All the hockey players, all the people who normally wouldn't cared at all about right. any of that. Because you're an athlete too, right? Yeah, were you a baseball player, a half-assed athlete. Yes, I could play most things. Right. And I could play it well enough to make the team and usually sit on my ass. Right, and that that in conjunction with watching TV all the time, whatever. I, my mother signed me up for. Well, first of all, I only applied to Catholic University, which is in Washington, D.C., which has a well-reputed theater company. I don't know what it's like now. That was a long time ago. But, so I applied there. It was the only college I applied to thinking, well, I won't get in any because my grades were so bad. I was going to go do a post-grad year at some prep school and get my act together and then go to college. And I got in. And my mother signed me up for the theater program. Because she's like, well, this is all you care about. So, and by that time, it was all you cared about. That it didn't well, it coalesced as much as into anything something else. It was like, well, I guess <laughs> by then I had realized this was a job. Right, you could someone could actually that this these things weren't just happening. Right, on my television, someone <laughs> made them. Right, and specifically, I remember watching I Claudius, BBC production yeah. in the seventies, famous Derek Jacobi. Derek Jacobi. And him walking through, you know, muslin flats and going, and like, Look at this, thing. this looks like shit. And you, and then you, and then you're immediately hooked. So it started to dawn on me. And was there something you did at college there? I did. University? That's when I started. So then I became a theater major in college, and that's where I started and learned anything I knew, which was nothing. Every I, so anything I learned was was at that place. Right. And then it kind of started off. Was there a show or a part that you did there that you felt like, hang on, 
Um, I'm not half bad at this. I did um, Alcestis. Oh, yeah. Alcestis. Yeah. I played Metus. Good. Um, got a few laughs. I played uh, Matthew Skips in The Ladies Not for Burning. Right. Which was the old guy who thinks he's died. You're sounding magnificently unenthusiastic about this. And I don't mean this as, oh, a, as, a, as a criticism. Well, no, it, no, all I mean is that it sounds like you got to the other side of that without, you know, people often talk about feeling like, actually, you know what, I found, it doesn't seem like I'm terribly qualified to do anything else, but I'm very qualified to do this. Uh, you find yourself standing on stage doing a particular thing or in a group of people mm -hmm. that feel like your tribe and you feel like, Jesus, I, I could, well, I want to do this. Okay, there was one play, The Duck Variations, David Mamet. Oh, yeah. which, you know, this sure. is college, so you're playing people sure. who are 200 years old. Sure. So I was playing an old guy. It's basically two guys sitting on a bench. Right. You know, and yeah. scenes, lights up, funny scene, lights down. Right. And we did that. And this one, the, there was one guy there named Jim Waring, James Waring, who was... Of, of greater weight than everybody else huh. in, in that play. There, were a couple, there was a playwriting teacher. There was, you know, a handful <clears throat> of teachers that you knew, this guy has the goods, or at least as a person, has a very low bullshit meter. Right. And we did a critique of it, of, of the production afterwards in his class, and he said, he was sort of went off on this one kid. It was only two of us in the play. And then he looked at me and he goes, and you... You're just a natural, you know. He, didn't, he unenthusiastically said that he said oh. you're just kind of a natural who, you know. And he and he just started laughing. And he's smoking. He weighed three hundred <laughs> pounds. He's probably drunk most of the time. And he just started telling me things that I was like, "What? Oh, okay." But that was the sound. So the, right. the, the, the conditioning that I got that said, "Oh, oh, I am, I am okay." Oh, that's so great. I remember being on a train. I had a very, I had a similar thing long after I'd finished training or I was out in the world being an actor. But in my mind, I wasn't quite convinced. You yeah, know what I mean? That's it's strange. Perfectly and it close. needs somebody to do something like that. And oddly, when you describe his lack of <laughs> he was, color or emotion about it, it's exactly yeah. what happened to me. So I'm on a train in India. I'm doing a production of a adaptation of George Eliot's novel, Mill on the Floss. And we're doing it around India, Bangladesh, and Sri Lanka. And I'm traveling with a brilliant theater director, one of the best theater directors I've ever known, called Nancy Meckler, who's American, actually, but she worked, has worked mostly in, in London. And we're doing this play for a company called Shared Experience around the Indian subcontinent. And we were just traveling in a train, one of those extraordinary Indian train journeys one day. She just turned to me. Very, very uninflected. And she said, oh, by the way, I love the way you play this part. Wow. And they just carried on looking out the window again. <clears throat> and that's much, that was it. That's that much was, more glamorous. That was the click. Glamorous. That was, it was slightly more glamorous, that's wasn't glamorous. it? But I like the 300 pounds, slightly drunk, smoky guy. But it was that click yeah. of going, oh, well, in that case, maybe it's going to be okay. Yeah. Maybe it's worth a shot. This was after you, so you post-university. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so this is out on some... But that's amazing. I, was I did this, a similar thing, but mine was in the U.S. with a company, who, and you, you do two plays, and you take them out all over this country, and you do them at colleges oh. and, and things like that. It doesn't. It wasn't the Indian subcontinent, but, right? Sure. Yeah, but yeah, it, it's just that one person who you have faith in, yeah, or you or or isn't as corny as all the rest of them, who says, "By the way, what you're doing is is working." And you go, "It's oh, huge." Oh. Well, in that case, I won't. Look for anything else to do. 
which I was thinking about. I totally, I completely agree. It's a strange, and that's suddenly 30 years later, here you are, yeah. or much more. Um, uh, wait, so you get to New York, yeah. like most aspiring actors, you mm-hmm. find your way to New York. Yeah. And am I right in saying that the first play you do, you do in New York is Lisbon Traviata? I did a I did a little upstairs on the twelfth floor, you know, a couple of the you know uh, 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 right. sub productions right. of some weird play, but yeah. I, but yeah, the first actual play at an actual at Manhattan Theater Club, big Broadway show, off Broadway, Manhattan Theater Club. Oh, isn't Manhattan Theater Club considered? Well, Broadway? it is actually has the, but in those days they didn't oh. have that Broadway space and weren't qualified right. for any of that. Got it. This was in. 89, 88? Gosh, was it really? I think it was. Still 80s. 87? Terrence McNally play. Terrence McNally play. With Nathan Lane. Nathan Lane, Anthony Heald. Yep. And um, Dan Butler and myself. And I think you were naked. I was naked. Joey Tillinger directed. Yeah. Naked. You announced yourself to New York. Oh, Lord. Naked. Yeah. Yeah. How did you feel about it? Scared. He said, Joey Tillinger said, just pick a day. He said, "Look, if you had never, if you've done that, if you had done this before, I would say, well, just wait till we get in the theater and you can do it then." Right. But being that you've never done this before, I don't want you to have a heart attack when you take your clothes off in front of an audience or or in a theater and everything. So, just do it in rehearsal. Just pick a day. Right. And I said, "Okay, how about three weeks from Wednesday, <laughs> like the farthest day before we moved out of the rehearsal space that I could find?" And that day came, and all of a sudden you're taking your shoes oh, off and you're mate. sitting there. Off. The, it's just horrifying. Yeah. And there's just the tape lines on the floor, you know, so there's no like coming from behind, you know, standing there kind of getting your courage up and walking out from behind a, a, right, a, a flat wall, yeah, a sure. flat. That was, a, it was much less scary on a stage with the lights in your face where you can't see anybody in the audience. Well, Tillinger in that case was, was absolutely yeah, right. Was, that was yeah. a smart thing. Yeah. Did you ever get to the point with it where it was like a nudist colony where you oh, didn't yeah. even, you weren't even thinking about it? They tell you that, and they go, "Oh, it's very liberating." And I'm like, "I don't, I don't even know what that means." And by the time you know, we we so we ran it at Manhattan Theater Club, then it moved to the Promenade Theater. Do you remember the Promenade? Theater? I don't. Seventy sixth and Broadway, okay. as I remember, very steeply raked audience. I mean, house, two balconies, maybe right. one or two. Like definitely, you're looking up. You know, you could look way up. Right. And we did it there for, so we did it for its initial run at Manhattan Theater Club, and then we moved it to Uptown. That was at City Center, wow. and then moved it Uptown and did it there for a while. Wow, so you And then they did it in L.A. But not with you. Well, I just had had enough. And yeah. my part was only like two scenes. And, right. But I did, you know, it, it, it and the, but the play was a hit, and Nathan was a famous, sensation. Of course, it was a famous, famous yeah. production. Yeah. But, so... I mean, not, I didn't see it, obviously. So, but were you naked? For, I'm sorry to keep going on about this. Were you naked for a long time? Could you artfully arrange yourself so it wasn't cashew nut? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was. You could pre sort of uh, condition yourself to to looking like not, uh, uh, you know, give it a little tug on the way, <laughs> a little just, auto just, fluff, just because. Yeah, applying the hair dryer. The the, the idea is that a guy walks out like like a guy comes home. I think the first the first act of the play is Nathan Lane and Tony Heald right. at Nathan's apartment. Right. He plays a character called Mendy, and it's called Lisbon Traviata because yeah. it's Callas, right? Maria Callas's tra- La Traviata in yeah. Lisbon that was famous. Yeah. It was a live recording, and they listen to it and they wax. And Nathan is hilarious, yeah. and he plays the part, and he was wearing 
you know, he's wearing a cape or something. And oh, I remember he was just, pictures, just yeah. brilliantly funny. Yeah. And then the second act, Tony Heald's character goes home to his house and there's clothes on the living room floor right. and everybody. And then I walk out to get my pants right. having spent the night with right. his boyfriend. I don't know if they have an arrangement. I guess they have an arrangement. Right, right. And then we have, and I'm caught in flagrante. Right. Isn't that, is that what that means? It's absolutely right. In the act. No, in flagrante, I think, yes. Well, I mean, it just means caught unprepared. And then I pick my pants up and kind of cover oh, my. Oh, so it wasn't, it was just sort of. Oh, a, there you go. It's not yeah, wandering around for cute. 25 minutes. Um, no. Willem Dafoe, who I interviewed for this podcast, is very keen on nudity on stage. He was a big proponent of it. He said that's why. You know, sometimes it's just best to, to take your clothes off. Yeah, I've done it different... two other times. Have you? Yeah. yeah. What two other the play times? play that I told you about Mi Vida Loca, where I was yeah. naked in a hammock with J. Smith Cameron. Gosh. Um, Powerful image. And then the third time was the most naked was I, w- I was in a play called The Extra Man, a Richard Greenberg play, in which I have to find out that my wife has been sleeping with my best friend. And then I stand up from this restaurant table. The table slides up. Bedroom set comes sliding on. With my wife, Lila Robbins, in the in the bed. And um, I have to uh, come in as though I've just come home from work. Take off, you know, tie, jacket, shirt, pants, socks, shoes, underwear in the audience. Oh, yes. You know, oh, and cry. Oh, with no dialogue. Jesus. With no dialogue. The night that what do wow. we call it? The silent naked scene of tears or whatever we were calling it. Yeah. So that was that was really vulnerable. Wow. So so you're taking everything off, the scene changes. So there's also already this inbuilt tension of wait, he's not gonna take he's taking everything off. It's actually yeah. happening. Yeah. And then you had to cry. Yeah. And I remember there was a point during the rehearsal. Now, I'd already been nude a couple of times, so I said, look, right. I, I used Joey Tillinger right. on him. I said, Michael Engler was directing it. And I said, I've done this before, so I'm just going to wait until we get in the theater. So then the night come, we get in the theater, and then we're in tech, and I don't know, I'd never done... And then and then the first preview's coming, and it wasn't the nudity, it was the weeping that I was not... Because there's no scene to get you there. You just have to get up. I mean, you oh sort of... You, the scene prior, you find out this horrible news, Boyd Gaines was my pal, my best right. friend, right. Adam Arkin. It was right. Adam Arkin, Boyd, myself, and Lila. And uh, Adam, who's now a director? Yeah. Great guy, great actor. Yeah. Super funny. Gosh, interesting. We're still very good friends. Um, so you had the scene to take you into this next scene. You said basically stand up, stunned, and all this furniture comes sliding off and sliding on. I don't mean to say that Richard didn't get me there. Right. But I couldn't. The nudity was so distracting that I couldn't, oh, that my man. emotions were just dried up or frozen or whatever. And I finally, so Mike Langlish said, listen, if you can't cry, basically he's telling me, if you can't get it up, you need to look like you're crying. Right, So right. that Lila can see you, and I'm, I'm raising John, my shoulders, John is, not yes. shrugging like, <laughs> John is doing excellent sobbing Like, do shoulders. that, do that so that she can see you. The audience knows that she sees you yeah, crying and yeah. knows that something's up but doesn't know what. Right. And that even froze me. I was just like, what? Fake crying? I haven't even... And then it finally figured out how to get there. And, you know, crying on stage is like... Of eight shows a week, you probably... I would, I would average six. Six? And they'd be two... That would, you were definitely like a matinee thinking, I'm starving. 
and your, your shoulders are going up and down, and you're just like, get me out of here. Six is a strong batting well, yeah, average. Four to six. I mean, I've done that. I've done a lot of on stage. So, he sobs. Oh god, I mean, that is just brutal. Well, we we're going to talk about Rabbit Hole because you presumably yeah. must have had to do that. I saw you in that. You were magnificent in that part. Jeez, this is huge news. So you do it six. Maybe I would a, say I, maybe I'm a, being generous with myself, but let's say four you, out of eight. Yeah, okay. At but least that four, is still say. however many unmotivated weeps uh, yeah. over the course of a run. Oh, so many. Dare I ask you how you? I mean, got I remember, to that point, particularly when, if you've done it multiple times. Is it always the play, or do you use anything it's else? It's the play, but then you have to cook something up. I mean, you can't. You know, yeah. there's only so many circumstances you're going to care about yeah. in an, after an extended period. I'll tell you something. In that extra man play, a friend of mine had died, a close, close friend of mine. And that had happened right before we started rehearsal. That that thing was looming so it was just like a like a giant fucking like a building right in front of you that you're just basically working around. Yeah. And there's this play that happens to be uh, uh in front of you know, that you're working on and and this cataclysmic thing happens to this character, but it's so it's so heavy. So I went to my acting teacher, the great Fred Caraman, and I went to him and I said, I'm jammed up. I don't, I don't know what to do. And he said, well, what are the circumstances of the play? I told him what the play was about. And he said, and what are you working on? I said, well, and this is literally the day that Michael Angler had told me, listen, if you can't cry, you have to do, do this. The shoulders. And I'm like, I'm fucked. And I, I called this guy, Freddie, and we were at city center right around the corner from where he taught class. So he said, well, meet me at the, that coffee shop. So I meet him at the coffee shop. We're sitting in the diner before the first preview, an hour and an hour before the first preview. Wow. And I said, I don't know what I'm going to do. And he said, well, what are the circumstances? I told him the circumstances. Best friend sleeping with my wife. It's been happening, going on for a long time. Well, what are you working on? Well, this friend of mine died, killed himself. He sort of sat there for a minute. And he was just like, um, all I can tell you is I, I wouldn't fuck with it too much. Right. You know, it was, you know, he could look at me. I guess he was looking at me and go, it's, it's gonna, it, 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 you'll get there. Yeah. And then whatever that was, it's like that same permission that I got from that teacher. Right. He's like, it's all, it's in there. Just let it go. Something to that effect. Right. Flipped that switch and I went back to that theater that night, that first preview and just fucking exploded. People are like, too much tears. Holy shit. Yeah, they're like, yeah. I can't. Could, he, just, could you get on with it? But I remember the relief at the same time of, oh, it worked. Yeah. I totally get that. I, I, I did Anthony Cleopatra mm -hmm. at the RSC and at the public two days. We started rehearsing it two days after my dad died. Oh. That was a weird situation in the, in the, <laughs> he, Anthony kills himself. He, he tries to kill himself at the end of the play, botches the job. It's the most magnificent, God, the most magnificent sequence. And like, you know, Reservoir Dogs, the Tim Roth character in Reservoir Dogs, he spends the rest of the play bleeding out in real wow. time, having failed to nobly kill himself. And doing that stuff, you know, it was awful. Sort of being yoked to this life experience yeah. was actually awful. You know, this sort of sense that I was dragging my poor old man out on the stage with me again yeah. tonight when yeah. neither he nor I uh, wanted to be there, uh, you know. It so rules your every moment. It really does. And, and you do feel like you're cheapening this thing. Yes. But you'd be doing it. I mean, the thing is, ex yes. exactly what happened. But then... If it isn't that, then it's something that you're yeah. going to cook, yeah. cook up. I have a kid, you know, and yeah. you yeah, talk about yeah, the kid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Simon Russell Beale's 
told me that his mum died while he was doing Hamlet and, you know, actually he felt it was an enormous privilege to sort of grieve right. through this medium of this play. I found it, well, I suppose because grief affects everyone differently, but to me it was a kind of form of madness in a way. Mm. So it didn't feel very safe or, you know, okay in some strange way. I felt the same, kind of the same, both of those things. I thought, well, this is, I had a notebook that I would write in get to the theater an hour and a half early and just start yeah. unloading on how uh. like what is this is this person was like the first friend I ever had so it went, kind of made you question like well, what was what was actually going on all those times that we were doing all this other stuff what was he thinking and we had just taken taken a cross country trip together and I was like so what was going on then so it was a therapy it was an ongoing therapy session but also you're aware of the fact that you're using this thing so it's cuckoo, you know, yeah. it's like, what the, yeah. like, this is what, this is what we do for a living. Yeah. I know. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing. However you cha-ching Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business from the launch, your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the, did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the Internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. All right. That's curtain down on act one of my chat with the great John Slattery. Please come back and join me for act two. What do we talk about in act two? I hear you ask. I'll give you a sneak peek. We talk about Nathan Lane. That's what we talk about. We talk about John's three collaborations with Nathan Lane. We talk about crashing waves of epic laughter (laughs) in one of them. And why Nathan is so great on stage. Um, We talk about taking beta blockers to audition, fighting for a part, and having to slightly tranquilize yourself for... uh, for the fear of doing the audition, playing Pinter with Juliette Binoche, more sobbing, and, um, oh, the undeniability of theatre. John is very good on that. Please come back and join me. I hope you do. Stage, stage, stage door, Johnny. Stage, stage, stage door, Johnny. Not a line rhymes with Johnny, but here is stage door, Johnny.
Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.